passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Did somebody say playoffs? The NBA, MLB, and then NHL are in full swing and our partners have been online and got you covered. Are you a betting man, Derek? Sports betting? No, I am not. I'm not stupid. Betting sports is my favorite thing ever. And I think this year, the Lakers are a lock, a absolute lock to take out the title. LeBron James, fine form, et cetera, et cetera. But I'll be honest, I've never once won a bet. So take advantage of sports being back and get in on the action with hundreds of odds, futures, and props for you to bet on. And there's always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and sign up to receive your welcome bonus and your first deposit. Meet me there. Yeah, again, that's betonline.ag. Welcome, Antigua, Antigua listeners, and sign up today. Betonline.ag, sign up today. Betonline, your online sports book experts. I'm Derek Riley. I'm with Charlie Smith, and welcome to Dirty Water, one hour of incoherent conversation where the bitter mask of seriousness has rarely slipped on. Today's guest on Dirty Water presents, irresistibly, as a keynote speaker of considerable fame and even little fortune, he came from the bruising circuit of Maroubra, Sydney, via the cutthroat athleticism of professional big wave surfing. He is a ruminative man, as you'll soon hear. Give him one little opening for the point he wants to make and down he comes upon you, in under your guard, flashing and relentless as a rapier. Our guest has been crippled and winged innumerable times, told he'll never surf again, never walk again. A cracked plate that can never be warmed on the stove nor brought out for company. Good only to hold crackers late at night or to go into the fridge under the leftovers. <laughs> but where a lesser man might sink into the velvet lazy chair of opiates and pity, descending eventually into a hell of despondency, he is optimism, optimism radiant and roaring, faith vindicated. Today's guest, Mr. Mark Matthews. How, <laughs> Derek Riley, you are, you are becoming the preeminent biographer in podcast history. <laughs> Jeez, there were some words in that intro. I just, I just, <laughs> I just, I just get dictionary out it. for at least 60% of them. <laughs> no, I just, I just like metaphors and similes. <laughs> it's really so good. Be, I mean, they really, you, you're really hitting high art at this point. <laughs> hey, hey, so Marky, I'm going to climb out a little limb here. I mean, it's, it's probably not a limb at all. But you're the, you're the most um, intellectually curious pro um, intellectually curious pro surfer I've ever met. So the only person I can uh, text to discourse on the cycles of history, as discussed by Anthony Burgess in the Wanting Scene, and have you actually read it? So I, w- I want to know, I mean, I know your mum's a doc and all that, but how did the kid from the bra with no fancy learning get so erudite, so career-driven? My dad's a doc. My my, my mum was the sec- doctor's secretary. Um, wow. oh, just heaps of spare time, I think. <laughs> the original, like, travelling, surfing and doing the tour was, like, no phones, no smartphones, nothing like that. It's like you just got so much spare time to fill in and... I don't know. I just uh, but there's cocaine. I went, I went down rabbit holes trying to like 
figure out ways I could be successful. I just, I've never in my entire life been like, you know, like the top of the talent pool at anything I've done. I've just always been like average, like average or just above average, like just in that range. And so I've always been like, especially with surfing, you know, and so I was always like, what, what can I learn that can, could, you know, give me a leg up to beat these more talented dudes out here. So I think that's kind of what makes me really interested in, in learning things. The secret was always cocaine, Mark. That was the, <laughs> that was the secret all along. <laughs> yeah, so I never fell into the trap, that trap. So maybe it was that. <laughs> maybe all it was was that I didn't fall into that trap. So I had to fill my time with something else. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because there's so much uh, spare time on the Pro Tour because he did the QS and, and all that sort of shit. But no, nobody else gives a fuck about uh, what's between their ears. I mean, you're, you're the only person that I've ever met in you know 20 years of doing this shit. I think Why maybe they do. You just haven't come across them, maybe. <laughs> or maybe they don't, you know, it's, it's not in their wheelhouse to be talking about it within <laughs> the, the scope of the surf media and, and, and their persona with what's, uh, what's selling their sponsors' products. So. What was it? There'd be some was, interesting cats out there for sure. What was the book that turned, or the something that turned you on? Like, I mean, everybody has that first book, right? Or not everybody. Most surfers don't, except for you. What was your there was, first book? The, the, the one that, that I, I remember pretty clearly that made me just think about things differently was um, my mom's like super spiritual. Like she, she, well, she was like religious and then spiritual. She was always searching for things. That's probably where I get them from. And she, um, she's like gone on to teach yoga and live in ashrams and stuff like that. But I was flying back from Europe and I stopped and, and I got a, a book like just to give her as a gift. And it was, it was one of the Dalai Lama's books. And I just read it on the plane on the way home. And, and I was like, fuck, that was, that's interesting. Like I'd never, you never even come close to a, a perspective like that on the world you know, just going through standard schooling and, and, and the area that I grew up in. So I was just like, whoa, that's a, that's pretty interesting way to like, it was the art of happiness, I think. And it was just like having, like shift it. You can, you can shift perspective on the way you're seeing the world. And, and if you have that as a tool, then you don't have to be so bitter, angry, resentful, what, whatever you might be in that moment. It's kind of an element of that's in control. So I was just like, whoa, that's, and that kind of led me down a journey of, that the sort of the self-help style books, I think. That's pretty epic, the Dalai Lama. Yeah. <laughs> how, how old were you, Buck? I would have been like 20, early 20s, I think. And what were you like as a person before you picked up that book? I mean, I know you're curious or whatever, but there was a, uh, you're a bit of a tough nut as well, weren't you? Yeah, I think I was angrier, a, a whole lot angrier than what I was for whatever reason. I don't know, it's kind of slipped into... I, I slipped into that that mindset of, of when you're younger where it was like we had this like anti-establishment thing growing up like which was kind of good in a way you were like you know the, the, the establishment's trying to hold you down we, like everyone's from this rough uh, like my um, like minority poorer neighborhood blue collar and so screw the establishment they're trying to hold you down and don't give a fuck about what anyone thinks about you. Just you be successful, you know. But then, but there was like a an anger in that, and it was just like this weird perception of like you always thought successful people were trying to hold you down, you know. Like you'd look across the bay at Maroubra to like Lurline and all the nice suburbs, and like you'd think that they're there and you're here because 
they've figured out how they can stand on top of you to get to there, which is just back to front, you know, like, and, and that, and that, I think that may like, I don't know. I, I don't know where I got all that from, but it was just like, that makes you kind of bitter. And then I think that that's kind of, I've, that's shifted down the road. That's a good, that's a common mindset though. on um, poor and rough neighborhoods though, huh? That the rich are somehow screwing the poor people. Yeah, but I never had that. Like I had the, a perfect family upbringing. Like aside from my parents splitting, you know, and my dad getting into a bit of financial trouble, but I didn't. Like I never really was was struggling. But you could just see the affluence around you, you know. And but it was just the common mindset was that they got rich by standing on other people, you know, which which breeds bitterness, you know. So it's kind of I don't know. I think I was angrier uh, through a period. I, I, like I don't think I was like angry as a kid, young kid or anything, but I think I just went into that into my teens. And then, um, yeah, it was just refreshing to realise that you didn't have to be like that. <laughs> the world wasn't actually like that. Because <laughs> you saw both poles. You saw the, you know, housing commission on one side, literally one side of your house and one side of the street, and then go a few streets and there was, uh, you know, $10 million mansions on the water, huh? Yeah, it was, it was like, pretty apparent. Not that that the housing commissions are like slums in Africa or anything. Like you live in five minutes from the beach, but there's a big difference between a house at Lowline and a house in Lexo for sure. Oh, there's a different mindset. The, the, the bigger difference that, that's tougher to deal with is not like the house. It's like usually the the parents raising the kids is what makes life fucking hell for the kids growing up, you know, in comparison. And that's probably where some of that anger come from from my friends, you know. And, and what about, you know, the, the, the essence of, you know, manhood, you know, down in Maroubra back in those, those days, I guess, you know, 18, 15, 18 years ago, and the need to, to be constantly proving yourself and to, uh, and, you know, that, that, so I guess it's kind of like a warrior spirit. Yeah, I don't think that's anything weird or just only in Maroubra. I reckon that's a pretty natural thing for young people to go through, maybe more so young males to go through. Um, I think everyone is constantly, whether they want to admit it or not, especially when you're a teenager, you're trying to prove yourself to the people around you. Like people can pretend like they're not and they don't care what people think. That's a crock of shit. Like you care what people think your whole life, but you care way more when you're a teenager for whatever reason. That's what makes like being a teenager so tough, you know, going to school and stuff like that. But um, I think it's just like that, that feeling, that sentiment was channeled into into surfing in Maroubra and because it was like there was there was such a tribal nature coming out of the the housing commissions where it's like a whole bunch of kids who don't have the like awesome family life that they can go and spend time with are all spending time together at you know at the beach surfing and they don't have time to go back there so it's like that that just kind of exacerbates that you know, because all those kids are spending time together feeding off each other and then, and then it grows and grows and grows and they're all trying to outdo each other and prove, you know, prove their toughness, you know, or prove their worth. And that's kind of what you do as a teenager. But, Just let me fix this light flashing that, in my eyes. <laughs> but that, that tribalism, and it became very pointed in Maroubra because it created a, um, a group of guys who are insane big wave surfers, like Hawaiian-style big wave surfers, and also great fighters who had these, these kids just out of nowhere. Suddenly we could go to Hawaii brother, or, you know, Mexico or wherever, brother, biggest waves and fight the toughest guys. It was, it was really a peculiar Maroubra thing, huh? Yeah, it, I mean, I think it just spilled over. Like it was always to do with surfing originally when I was young. But I, I actually think looking back on it, like that there was, the, 
it, it spilled into fighting because there was like, can you remember back in those days? And it was probably a, even a decade, the decade before when I was young, but there was that, um, it was like that gangster rap culture came across from America. You, do you remember that? Like all the music was heavy gangster rap and it was just about violence and shit, you know? And then, so it was like, the surround. Do you remember like bombers? Do you remember growing up and there were bombers like cruising the streets, like dudes that wear the hat high on their heads and stuff? Like yeah, I remember. Uh, I remember. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, I remember interviewing Kobe when he was fifteen outside the old video store on uh, I guess it's Marine Parade, and um, him just saying to the bombers, you know, get home and stay home, you're nothing, and just yeah. Constant, <laughs> constant, so it, like rolling. the mandate of of like the bombers and that growing up was like they didn't have anything better to do. They didn't have surfing and shit to do, but mm. like their fun was going and picking on and beating up surfers in the area like that because that was an easy target, you know. Like so that's that's kind of where the like the the mentality of like proving yourself in the surf went into into like fighting and on the street because it was like the 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 group growing up in River before my time, it was like they were dealing with all that shit, like people coming down to the beach to beat up surfers. Like, and it was actually like that. It's so foreign. Like it doesn't, shit doesn't happen anymore. And they were just like, fuck this. We're not having them come to where we live and do it. Like, sure, like you don't go to where they live because you'll get beaten up, but you're not having them come to where you live and do it. So it was always like, then it was like, no, like, and, and that's like a standard thing where it's like if, if you back down once, then you, then they get stronger, you know? Like, so it was like that mandate was like, if that shit happened, you never back down. You've always fought. If you saw a friend in that situation, you always jumped in and helped, you know? And then it was like, and, and there were reparations, you know? Like, so it was like, if, if, if something was done to someone, you'd get them back. So then it was like taught that, oh, you don't, you know, they can't come in and pick on someone, a young surfer from Maruba, because otherwise there's payback, you know. And that's how, like, and it was, like, wearing out when I was older, but it was a lot heavier before before I was growing up down there, you know. And I think that's where it kind of, all, all of that, like, mixed in together and, and bred out of there. But it made for some wild times, that's for sure. <laughs> Do you think all of it avoidable? Like that's the hard. That's the thing. Like it's not like you're living in the slums of Africa where you can't avoid that type of terror and violence. You know, like it's it was it was all avoidable. But but in saying that, also it's like if you're going to avoid it and 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 your mandate is to avoid all of that, then you're kind of letting the bully win. You know, like that, and that's the version that that, that's like you can't just always let the bully win. But literature, human history, all of it, like these kinds of battles, uh, it's like Montague Capulet on down through whatever, right? I mean, this is the this stuff that makes history. stories. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> this is human history. This uh, is basic human psychology. <laughs> exactly. And that's pretty fun right there. I mean, that's how gr- like, I think you, everybody's myopic in the present, right? Like, you, I don't know what kids are doing now except for watching TikTok, right? But this is not happening in Mar- Maroubra now, right? There's not bombers no. coming down to fight surfers. Nothing and so you like take, that. Precisely. No. You take that away and you put it online or something where, you know, people, you can run around and kill each other, you know, in Fortnite. Yeah. That's not new. And, and I mean, that, that was the other awesome thing of the explosion of the UFC because it was like, Easy. If you want to prove yourself, if your way of proving yourself is is violence, which which it like, 
fair enough. That's a way to do it, you know. Like that's that was part of survival back in the day. So that's still that fucking programming still in a lot of people. So it's like, but then that's awesome. You've got the advent of the UFC. You can go and do it, and you can do it against someone who's also looking to do it, you know, like cause <laughs> that was the perfect thing because that stopped people going, oh, we're just going to go out, get blind drunk and get into fights, you know, with people that probably don't even want to fight, you know, like <laughs> that, that's just the stupid version of it. So then it was it's really easy to go, well, you're not tough unless you're going in the UFC or having your own cage fight against someone who actually is training and wants to fight, you know, like, and that just settled, settled everything because it's like, and then you saw people, you know, who was tough. I'm hundred percent not tough enough or brave enough to go and do that. Do you know what I mean? Like, so it was a good wake up call for me. It's like, stop being an idiot when you got like, you know, alcohol courage out at night. It's just like, if you don't want to do it, then don't do it. (laughs) You could always have a couple of vodkas before you jumped in the cage, though, Marky. Yeah, that, that's true. I could do that. Sure about that 10 minutes, Chaz will be ready to... Um, <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Give me like six and I'm ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Marky, do you think that um, that whole violence thing reached its apogee with the um, with your famous 21st birthday party at the uh, Coogee Bay Hotel? So for people who don't know, uh, and it's in the movie um, The Bra Boys, um, Mark had his 21st birthday at this... Um, infamous pub in Sydney and it happened to be the same night the cops are having their Christmas party, I think, wasn't it? And, uh, and then, and then I uh, got into a bit of push and shove in the left. And it was just an all in brawl. Yeah. It exploded. And it was, I mean, <laughs> there wasn't one sided either, mate. They were a tough group of like, I, don't, I can't remember what precinct in the Eastern suburbs it was, but they were notorious for themselves for getting in, in off duty fights. <laughs> it was like, Two Christmas parties on on either levels, and and the the club did the stupid thing of ending the Christmas parties or finishing the night up at exactly the same time. So it was like two parties of blind drunk hundred people each party coming out into this tiny little elevator hallway all together, and it just exploded, <laughs> and uh, it ended up like riot police out the front, helicopters over, it's like people with batons and all that type of stuff. So, I mean, that was the that was probably the the high and low point for for my um, experiences with uh, brushes with the law and can you, can you describe that um, that scene though? The melee was there? Uh, was it was it punches? Was it wrestling? Was it a bit of both? Were there five people on one and penis? Oh, I was just like a it's like a mosh pit at a at a concert, like you go to a sick concert, there's a mosh pit right in front of the stage and people are just flying around all over the place, windmilling and throwing punches. I remember like the clear as day, the moment who someone got thrown into the wall and just went straight in like through the the soft gyp rock or whatever, it's just big hole in the wall. And all I could think about was like, there's my $2,000 deposit. Like I was 21, <laughs> dude. I was, and that was my flight back to Hawaii, like after my... You know, like it was November and that, that was my flight back to Hawaii gone. And that's all I could think about. So I was just like trying to stop it before that, trying to like get, make sure my top deposit was safe. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then it, yeah, it just was chaos. So how long, after, how, how long after that did you read The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama? Um, fuck, it might have even been that year. It was early 20s. That's a big really year right there. 
I got a really hazy memory. It could have been <laughs> two years later when it comes to the past. Do you struggle to remember the, the past? Like, the, I, I struggle to remember dates when things happen and time. I, I have honest to goodness no. I wrote a whole damn book and sent it to my buddies who were there with me, and they said, "What is this?" <laughs> and had to rewrite the whole thing because every one of my dates was off. Yeah, by like I'm, a decade. I, I can be years off. So yeah. sometimes it's weird. Yeah. Jesus. Hitting the head. So Mark, so Mark's got a, uh, a movie coming out pretty soon, Chaz, um, with Red Bull. Is that right, Malaki? Yeah. Yeah. So on the side of fear, it's called. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. In, in the movie, there's um, your sister's in there, and she says that everything you do is facing your fear because you've always been so fearful, which I think is kind of an interesting concept. I mean, you know, somebody rides Jaws, ours, and you know, and yet you can be as scared, you know, as a cruelly beaten child hearing his daddy's footsteps coming up the hallway. <laughs> you know, some people like me um, never face fear generally, and uh, whereas you tend to face That's a lie. <laughs> terrifying. Not, 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 jealous, not, not, not mortal fears. Like I can't, you can't. Like I'm not scared of public speaking or that sort of shit, but scared of any any way over three feet. So, so let's let's talk about your process of of how you get through fears. Yeah, I think like to to, to clarify, it's like I'm I'm just as a kid and now. I'm I'm hyper neurotic, which means I I like think worst case scenarios over and over again in my head. That's what made me an anxious kid. That's where my sister's coming from when it's like he was always scared of stuff, you know. Like I, I was always, even up into like probably early teens, like I'd sneak into my parents' room and sleep at the foot of their bed because I thought because my room was at the front of the house that some, an intruder was going to jump into my room first. They probably were in my room though, mate. <laughs> this was a nice part of Maribor. <laughs> yeah, so like I'm overly neurotic, which means like things probably like concern me more than than average person. And then I'm like hyper introverted, which which means like I also get nervous around people, you know, groups of people and stuff like that. So it's that's where she gets that from. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I don't know. Just over time having a few different moments of like being terrified doing something but then getting through it and like feeling that feeling on the other side of it where it's like fuck I like I actually can do that you know and like feeling that relief and and the sense of pride that you you you're equipped to take something on like whether it was to do with slowly and slowly surfing bigger and bigger waves or new locations that I I was never think I was ever going to surf in my life or whether it's, you know, to do now with public speaking or just other things that are, are nerve-wracking. Um, I just think I got addicted to that, that feeling, you know, like that feeling of accomplishment, of, of being scared and the relief on the other side, but then believing that, you know, all of a sudden you start to believe that, fuck, if I, 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 I could manage that fear and deal with it there in surfing, so then it's like you taught yourself, um, not necessarily, you don't make yourself fearless because you're still scared to do other things, but you've taught yourself it's possible to f- be really nervous and still do something, you know, and, and that it feels good when you do do it. And I just, I just feel like I got addicted to that. Like it's, it's probably the exact same mechanism as getting addicted to anything else. Like you just, and then your brain kind of chases the feeling, you know. And so you're always looking for that thing that, that will, will bring it out. Um, it's definitely like I find, I find for me there's a threshold. Like I, I only need, need it in so many parts of my life and then like after that I'm done. Like I don't take 
any other dangerous risk, like physically dangerous risk other than surfing big waves. Like I don't go out of my way to jump off cliffs snowboarding or jump out of helicopters, base jump or any of that that sort of stuff, you know. So I think there's a kind of limit. But, um, yeah, I think I just became addicted to that. And, and then I had the added bonus that it was like I was too shit to be a competitive surfer, you know. So my surf career was about to vanish. But then all of a sudden I went out, surfed massive waves, got all these photos, covers of magazines, and, and it was like, oh, hold on a minute. He, I can make a career doing this because no one else wants to do this, you know. So as long as I can, like, figure out to be motivated enough to keep doing this consistently, chasing big wave surfing, getting photos, um, I can have a career surfing. I don't have to go back to work or study or do whatever else. And, and that was just that other um, powerful motivator that that popped up what was the first the first wave that scared you i mean as a kid like was it i mean just a bigger day at the beaches there or, or do you yeah i got a real clear picture of at maroubra beach like just in front of the stormwater drain i, I must have only been super young because it wasn't big at all but just the moment the first time where i was held like forcefully held underwater by a wave too long that it made me panic like and I'll, like got to get to the and it's just like that gut-wrenching panic and um yeah i can remember that clear as day when that happened but and i was probably only i don't know 11 12 years old or something like pretty young small waves but it probably scarred me for a long time because i didn't really surf big waves for a long time after that but I mean, somehow you pushed through, right? I mean, like, why? Just because, like, what was the what was the first accidental big wave you went and got that thought, oh, I can? There's something here. I mean, I think I think a lot, lot of it, a huge portion of it, was growing up in Maroubra and the the sort of like adoration you'd get from your peers and your friends if you surfed a big wave. I remember there was like a little reef. There's a, a reef break. It's like South Coogee. Deco, you'd know, like it's called honeycombs. It's like a novelty wave, but it's kind of heavy. It's like pushed right up against the rocks, but it only holds like four, four to six foot. But I remember at school, it was like I, I went to like a private school at the road. So like I remember surfing with that group of surfers who weren't good surfers, but I was the only one who would go out there and catch waves in that group, not the group from Maru because they'd all do it. But And then it was like they all saw me as like, whoa, he's like, he charges and that. And that was probably that first like, fuck, that feels good, you know, like, a, <laughs> and that kind of gets addictive. And then it like, it transforms into like, you just, it's impossible to not feel, fall in love with like the feeling of actually do it. And that's more the intrinsic part. If you look, if you, I, I think if you don't have enough of the intrinsic feeling where you actually do love the feeling of doing it, then you can't do it for a long period of time. Like you can go out and surf big waves you know, for a small amount and get the adoration from people. But then you eventually realise that adoration is like, it's not important enough for you to go out and risk your life over and over again. And it's also like taxing, chasing that I found. That's what I found in my career is like, the more I focused on that, like whether it was the career aspects of like, I've got to get content, 
I need everyone out here to think that I'm the biggest wave surfer in the world so I can get into the eddy or into the Jaws event. Um, I, you know, I, I can't not be the get the biggest wave of the day. Like I, I got to be positioned in deep as you can. Otherwise, I look like a fail. Like everything externally focused. In the periods where I was like that in my career, I just completely burnt out, like to the point where I was getting chronic fatigue and stuff and becoming exhausted. And then that always led to an injury, you know, I'd get some sort of injury. And um, and then I, I always watched from a distance, like like uh, Rasta or someone like that, where it was just like that, that dream existence of like where, to me, it, it seemed like he just didn't care about, anything what other people thought and he could just go and surf just to have fun you know that's what i could see externally i was like i used to always just sit back going fuck man i would love that <laughs> you know but i just learned to manage those, those two you know like in you've got to be in the state when you actually surf and just focused on what how you're going to enjoy this individual surf and let go of the the um the career aspects of it. Like you got to set all, set it all up so that the session is successful for your career. So it's like, all right, I'm going to organize the photographers, filmers, like we're going to do all that type of stuff. But then once you hit the water, it's got to just, you just got to be in there just focusing on what you're going to do out there. That's going to be enjoyable, you know? And otherwise it's kind of like you just, you take way too much risk and you burn yourself out. You know? What about uh, hacks to the average guy? Because um, <clears throat> I've noticed that um, guys who are pretty comfortable in big waves will paddle out and immediately take the alpha male role or sit the deepest or just, just suddenly just take off and they feed on the fear of other people. Whereas if you go the kind of tentative and think, oh, I'll just, just get into a couple of little ones first, you never really quite step up. So is there a little hack for, it, for average guys to um, up their big wave game? <laughs> oh, man, the, bi- the, the biggest hack that I always Your pill tell- I can take? <laughs> the biggest hack I always tell people, and it's like the simplest one, is just if you're going to go out in waves bigger than anything you've been out in before and you're nervous, have someone on the beach like watching you that you can just wave to and say, fuck, I'm in trouble. Like go get the lifeguards and, or go get someone to save me. If you have that, you're like there's way less chance that you're going to panic in the surf. And it's the panic that kills you, you know. Like if you're getting caught inside by a set, imagine you can just go – help, help, and you know someone's watching you, you know? So from the moment you've raised your hands, someone's going to be coming for you. So you know you just got to hold on. It's not all on your shoulders and you don't get that claustrophobic panic feeling. And that's the difference with with surfing massive waves. Like the biggest waves that I go out and surf are usually for me not the most frightening because I've got fucking jet skis all over the place. You're wearing like buoyancy vests. People are going to come in and rescue. There's probably like a defibrillator on the boat. Like if you black out on the water, they're just going to bring you back. Like there's all these things put in place. But whereas you could paddle out, like I used to paddle out at a big Haleiwa, right? Like so like maxing Haleiwa 15 foot late in the afternoon on dark with that crazy rip rushing through it or sunset That in board shorts. Like that shit is way more scary to me because like something goes wrong, you're dead, you know? Yeah, so the the... Just like, fuck, get someone to watch you. Like, that's the easiest tip that makes the biggest difference. Either that or go buy yourself an inflatable vest. That makes you about a thousand times outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> how, how small could you paddle out 
in an inflatable vest, Derek, and still feel like like you're. I always think about this <laughs> because I seriously want to wear them all the time at like yeah. it's six foot Indo when it's shallow or something, yeah. or like restaurants like in Fiji. It's like fuck, dude. Would it be bad if I just paddled out in a like fully padded vest? Stinking Tom Carroll made the gaff helmet almost cool all yeah. by himself. So well, just I had a resurgence recently. Totally. Like, all I reckon the boys if you did it. Not. If you did it and really pounded your chest at restaurants, at like four yeah. foot restaurants, <laughs> you'd start a tra- everybody's, like, everybody's just waiting for the one person to do it. Well, like, this is the perfect test for you to go out and make sure that you're not externally focused on what people think. Because if you can I'm paddle gonna, out I'm there gonna, fully buoyant and don't give a fuck about what people think, then you're probably going to I'm going to paddle out to two spot. foot D Street, two foot yeah. D Street in Encinitas <laughs> in my buoyancy vest. Just way well, yeah, What? I'm what not I drowning. Think. I'm yeah. good. Pulling those canisters, fucking exploding all those canisters every time you go underwater, huh? <laughs> exactly. Get out of here. Yeah, it's by far the biggest. Um, it's what has made big wave surfers now, like that leap in what people are saying, like big wave surfers, there's a huge leap in performance. That's all it is. It's just the, the vest that people can wear. Because you, it, like you could, if you gave Brock Little or, or, or any of those dudes, a vest to surf? Fuck me, they'd be doing crazy shit, you know? Do some of them have little mini oxygen tanks on them too or no? Um, no, not not the ones that we use. I, I did hear a story of someone using an oxygen tank I did too. at Mavericks, maybe? Yes, that's where it was. That's and and it, it worked, but then yeah. I've been told the dangers of it are that if, when you get pinned to the bottom and you breathe in the air you have to expel the air before you swim to the top because if you breathe in that air and you swim to the top, your lungs blow up. That's, but that's all a lie. You're, ne- you're never down. I mean, theoretically. Well, you're not down too deep. Precisely. You're never down more than 30 feet, are you? The, the, this is the, the thing. It depends on the wave because you can, go, you can go, say you're down 15, 20 feet, but then a 30-foot swell is over the top of you as the wave passes. Then you get yeah. the pressure of both. Okay, like, so, so you're like, so that's all. Yeah, but yeah. you just expel. You just make sure that you breathe. You go. Yeah. Ooh, but that's where it's like. Up. It's a little concerning when you. Right yeah, you expel all the oxygen <laughs> and then swim up straight up into another thirty foot. But an oxygen tank. You don't is need it. The inflatable things are like. You, you cannot comprehend how amazing these things are. Like you know when, imagine like a. A forty-foot like wall of whitewash that like that's the wave behind the one you wipe out on at Jaws, right? The biggest whitewash you've ever seen, or at Nazare and stuff like that. And your a vest is fully inflated, and you just go a foot underwater, and that whitewash goes over you. You're up on the surface in like five seconds. You're just laughing. I mean, is that yeah. the best part of the yeah? Wave and you're just rolling in like a buoyant. <laughs> it's like a fun park ride on the surface. Like it's still like you, you get scared because it looks so ridiculous, and you just like, oh, this might be the time that my vest pops or some shit like that. But but it's like people cannot understand the like how big a difference those things make. Like it's it's crazy. But if you had an oxygen, if you had you know oxygen tank or whatever it is, you could just swim down at the bottom. Just what come up five minutes later, couldn't you? That's dead flat. <laughs> you just just hang down there, just go under a five wave set and pop back straight inside. Yeah, swim, you could swim back to the boat and whole position of the line This I feel this is the next next big advancement in big wave surfing right here. I think we're going to be multi hundred thousand dollar airs for coming up just with the the small little. 
yeah, forget your inflatable vest. Just go down there and hang out. We're going to give you yeah, a And you'll have some belt. sort of like little propellant motor totally. that just drives you around under there. You wear you wear a lead belt while surfing and yeah. you just go <laughs> go down to the bottom once you wipe out and just breathe on your oxygen. There has to be some point where it's a different sport, eh? <laughs> it becomes a different sport. I guess that's scuba surfing we're not ready yeah. for. Hey, Mikey, let's talk about um, your uh, cavalcade of injuries. How many times have you busted your legs? Uh Fuck it. Like the, the last one is, is different. Like that's that's a real bad one where I've got permanent nerve damage. So my foot here, look, this thing do, this doesn't work anymore. It's like fixed at 90 <laughs> How degrees. How good's the scar there? That's good. Eh? Scar. But this is fixed at 90 degrees so it doesn't like move and I can't move it and I can't. So when I jump to my feet, I can't adjust my toes and stuff and like now I'm riding waves like – I'll get a bomb set at snapper. I jump to my feet and there's just a thousand people down the line and I'm like trying to navigate and turn through them and my toes are just like crunched like this. And I'm standing on top of my toes, like with no ability to touch the rail on that side. <laughs> it's so fucked. But then occasionally when like more often than not, I, now I get to my feet not, like properly and I can surf properly. Doesn't, but, doesn't, isn't there one benefit? You told, I think you told me once that there's some benefit by your foot only moving one way, what was the benefit? Oh, no, the benefit is now is that it's fixed at yeah. 90 degrees compared to like before it was dropping. So when I'd jump up, my foot would dangle down. So you're not even like – you have to wear a brace then and surf on this big plastic brace. So that part of it's good. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I've had heaps of other injuries, broken ankles and all that type of stuff. But that that's like – that's the bad one. That's Everything else is pretty minor compared to that. So, so I, I never realized how bad it was. Um, I remember visiting you at one point and, and you know, refusing to even look at the ocean because you didn't think you'd ever surf again. But when I watched your film, the doctor, I didn't realize how close it came to uh, you losing your leg. So can, can you yeah, describe he, how, how the injury happened and then the, and then the process of the hospital shit? Yeah, I was surfing a, a wave down south, southern New South Wales coast, like five hours from Sydney probably. Not a big wave, like, but just one of those waves, a good slab wave coming out of deep water, breaks on a shallow reef. It's called Killers, actually, so that gives you a good idea that it's, it's a pretty heavy I never surfed it before, though, and I was kind of um, – I'd just come back from a, the shoulder injury that I had at Jaws when I dislocated my shoulder, and I hadn't surfed any big waves yet, and I was, like, barely paddling at that point, but I was just going to tow into this wave. Anyway, I was just like probably overly anxious when I was surfing. And then so when I whipped it to a wave that I could see was going to close out rather than just pull into the barrel and let the barrel like kind of – like if you're in a shallow wave that's thick like a slab and you know it's going to close out, the best thing to do is be in it. Like if you can't straighten in front of it, be in it, let the barrel break around you and then that all the power and the energy breaks around you and then you, you – you get a wipeout and you might hit the bottom, but you don't hit it hard, you know. And then, but what I did was dive off early, like trying to escape out the back. But it's just too powerful, and the wave just picked me up and slammed me into the reef. I landed like one, all my weight, one foot, just kind of in a groove in the reef. I'm that's what I think. I don't know for sure, but kind of in a groove in a reef, and then all the weight of the wave, the power just crunched me like that, and my knee just, I felt a pop blinding pain and um i just got rolled around rolled around just finally get to the surface and then 
jet skis come in and pull me out, got me to the beach. And then they called for an ambulance. And the ambulance officer come and he was assessing my leg, but there's no blood or anything like that. So you can't really tell, like, other than how much pain I'm in. But he luckily called for a helicopter to get me to Canberra, the closest hospital. If he had a... Uh, decided to drive there, which would have been the normal thing because helicopters are like, fuck, they're only safe for like serious, serious injuries. That's what the surgeon said. If that ambulance officer had driven us there, I would have lost my leg for sure. He said one hour. He said if if I was there one hour later, just because it was the artery had torn in my leg. So internally it was bleeding, but you couldn't see it like other than the swelling in my leg. So I was, fuck, man, I was lucky, (laughs) very lucky. But uh, they couldn't do anything to fix the nerve damage that was in my leg. And, uh, like, that was the bad part. I thought, you know, for for months after the injury that they would be able to fix it because you can do another surgery, a nerve graft. And I kind of had high hopes of that happening, but I went and had that surgery. But then when that doctor cut me open and tried to fix it, he just went, nah, there's way too much damage. You just, it won't come back. You You can't, you won't be able to move your foot again. And then that's why I decided to get it fixed at 90 degrees. Um, but you, fa- you fast forwarded a little bit there because in the movie it describes um, you being in the hospital bed and everyone having to wait to see if um, uh, a pulse came back to your foot because your leg was going to be amputated, huh? Yeah, that was because – so they do – because the artery's torn, they do an artery bypass. So they took an artery from inside my other leg, a small piece of artery, and then they put it into the injured leg so that the blood will bypass and use that new artery. Um, but then they've got to wait to see if that works, like to see if it takes. And the only way you see how if that's working is you get a pulse back in your foot. And so if the pulse doesn't come back in your foot, it means it's going back and bleeding internally. So that was like a three-day wait of just checking it sort of every couple of hours, like, fuck. And then I'd be like, my wife had bit was was with me. She'd be like, "Fuck, I can I can feel it. I'm sure I can feel. I can feel it." And then we just get all excited, and then the doctor would come and go, "Nah, that's not it. That's not it." And then, like I think it was the fourth day, it was like the doctor comes in, is like, "Yep, that's it." And then got the ultrasound thing, can see it working. So that was a good feeling that it was didn't have to lose my leg. I did have. I was like in my head, I was like, if I had, if it gets amputated. Like I, I've seen that footage of Mike Coots surfing and doing sick shit. I was like, if that if that's going to be me, then that's going to be me, you know. But uh, yeah, I was pretty fucking lucky. You're probably thinking that was a good little career move if you lost your leg, huh? Fuck, you never know, mate. It was just <laughs> silver lining to everything. <laughs> Imagine though. Imagine what I would do. I, I would dream of fake legs. Fake yeah. legs are so much better than mine. I'm putting missiles on them. Yeah, I've got pretty of... average legs as it is. So <laughs> who knows? Maybe I would have got better surfer. Mark, can you describe your um, approach to painkillers? Because I remember twice seeing you dump Ziploc bags full of prescription drugs <clears throat> into the bin. So you, because you knew how much pain you were in, obviously, and um, how effective they were, but you never wanted to become dependent on them. So can yeah, can you describe how you, how you did that? And how you had the, I guess, comeuppance to um, <clears throat> to realise that they're incredibly addictive and that you needed to get off them. Yeah, that the, the pain that I was in, firstly, just to put into context, was way worse than anything I've ever felt. Like the nerve, the burning nerve pain, 
Like, because I've had every other injury, like broken bones, like stitches. I've had 70 stitches in my face. Like, I've had all dislocated shot. I've had That's all the glass, things huh? that you can, like, feel pain. And and I've barely, like, I've needed pat and eat for, for them, you know. Like, so I, this was something, like, I'd never experienced before. And, and the only way to, like, get through it was take painkillers and it was every painkiller under the sun from like all the different nerve medications that that are antidepressants themselves that they're the ones that subdue your nervous system um and then all, all the different opiate ones like um i think i was on fuck, by the end probably like 120 or 150 milligrams of oxy like they come in like five or ten milligram tablets so it's like massive doses of it because your body gets so used to it, so addicted. But um, I knew like I, I had a choice, right? I remember it was like the, the opiates, neither of the medications work that good for nerve pain, right? The, the nerve meds, which are like antidepressant type meds, like Lyrica and all that, they, they supposedly work better and they're better to take. The opiates don't necessarily work on the pain, but they make you feel amazing, you know, like they make you euphoric. So that helps deal with the pain because you're just euphoric. So the the doctors were always like, don't take the opiates because you'll get addicted for sure, you know, like you're in the the window of the age group and all that, like you're predisposed to getting addicted, so just stick to the, the nerve meds. But then I watched a podcast of a psychiatrist explaining how bad the nerve meds um, fuck your brain up. And and then I went online and, and read about all these people that were like, um, who had been on these meds for 10 years and been trying to get off them for 10 years but couldn't get off them because it's like they've altered your brain so your brain doesn't function the same anymore. So the only way you can half by feel normal and function is taking them. It's like there's no way off them. So I was just like, fuck this, I'm getting off them. I'll take like the risk of the addiction over that. And on top of that, I felt euphoric for, for a year because I was taking them. So it's funny because my wife was like, that's probably the most loving you've ever been in your life. Like you've never, ever told me you've loved me so many times. So that was one silver lining of being high, high as a kite for a year. But, um, but I knew deep down that I was like, like I understand aspects of addiction where it's much easier to remain addicted to something if your life sucks, you know? Like, so I, I just knew that once, if I could get to a point where life was getting better and I could do stuff, then it would be easier to get off the, the meds. So I just took them until that happened. So as soon as I could start getting out and swimming in the ocean and doing some exercise, I've picked up playing golf just as a hobby. Like, as soon as I could start doing all those things, then I slowly could get off the meds. I had a couple of attempts at going cold turkey, but fuck, that almost killed me, man. I get a little bit clearer picture of what it's like for people. And the the nerve meds were worse going cold turkey off them than the opiates. Like there's something called akathisia you get from from when you stop. Like if you take, I think it's like like a Valium type med for, for more than 10 days straight, some people... When if you go cold turkey from there, you get akathisia. I had that for like five days. It's the fucking worst thing in the world. It made my pain in my leg feel good. Like it's like someone 
poking you with a cattle prod and like constantly zapping you and you're just curled up in the fetal position. You can't like, you can't, and it's like this impending doom that you feel like constantly. Like I was having ice baths and shit to take my mind off it. Like if I jumped in an ice bath and just shocked myself enough, it'd be like at least 10 minutes of not dealing with that. Oh. But um, I, I learned then don't go cold turkey. You just got to taper off it for for over a long period of time. But but I just felt like a I don't know. You, you you have the you feel euphoric, but you feel like a zombie at the same time. Like you just not. It's not. I don't know. I just some people must like it more than others because I, I I don't know. I it didn't. I didn't feel alive when I was taking all that stuff. It's just a weird existence. What was but I can see life if your life really, really sucked, then I can see why people would take it. So what was the come down like from the opiates? Uh, it was just sick, like like vomiting, like something like sweats, like real shit, sleepless nights. But I did it. I just in the end, like that was going. It was gnarly when it's going going cold turkey. But I, in the end, I just did it really slowly, and then like it's not that bad. If you do it super slowly, then then it's not that bad. But but then mentally you're like, you can't. You just got to constantly fight the urge to, you like because you desperately want to get high. You know, like every time some shit happens, <laughs> like if if you have a fight with with your missus or you're like just whatever. If you got to do something that you don't want to do, it's just got to constantly fight the urge to fucking take them. When you're uh, when you're tapering, so you're you know going from I guess fifteen oxys a day to 10 to 5 whatever is it it must be the high point of your day when you get to have your have your oxy though huh yeah if especially if you hold off for a bit because if when you're tapering you don't you just don't get the same highs as what you do you know usually but if, if you kind of if you hold off and then you have your thing in the day yeah it's a high point for my wife too because then i'd be all nice and stuff <laughs> <being> so bitter <laughs> So what, what sort of uh, duck? I reply, one of the things I replaced it with <laughs> was fucking just junk food, mate. Oh, yeah. Like, at night, when and I'd be in pain, I'd be feeling so shit, I would just have tubs of fucking ice cream, Maccas, like, and I'd just sit there and just enjoy, like, they'd give you just enough of a, a kick, you know? <laughs> how how cr- crazy good is McDonald's in lieu of booze and other stuff? That that yeah that I it actually I, works. I still one of the addictions I I carry because I don't yeah. drink much so I'm like after a stressful day the thing I want is macas and ice cream you know it's not drinking drink is probably healthier. <laughs> so Mike, talk about talk about the dark tracks you might can go down you know you know post um, post the opiates post injury all those sorts of things you know because I know you went down a pretty depress- depressing track huh yeah it was. Ups and downs, like it, 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 like you got to come to grips with just I don't know. Like I, I feel like it wasn't. It fucking sucked. Don't get me wrong. Like like to understand that your career is finished. That that you're not you know you're not getting paid to surf anymore. The kind of identity that you're wrapped up in as being the big weight surfer that's gone. Like you, now you're just the the corporate trainer dude. <laughs> like you do some talks. You tell. To tell old surf stories like you kind of got to come to to grips with it that that side of it's pretty pretty tough i feel like um like it's just so different for 
different people, man. People have such different existences. I, I always thought that for me, like coming to the end of my surfing career was so much easier for me than it would have been for like a world former world champ who was the best in the world, right? Because they were the best. And then it's like it's sort of downhill track from there. Whereas like for me, I was never really the best at anything, you know? So it's like in, in my head, I never like had to really come down from that. So it was like, it sucked, but it wasn't, I feel like it, I, I can understand how for some people it's way harder. Like when I watch sporting stars or like people at the peak of fame or like whatever, and then they come down it on the other side. Um, it's tough. For me, uh, the things that helped me heaps was just like, having like just other little hobbies that I could do in the day. And and if they were like hobbies where I'm like kind of building skills that, that are going to help me down the track in life, like whether it's to do with work or whatever, if I could have those hobbies and they'd keep me entertained enough so you're not sitting around just dwelling on how shit everything is, that, that made all the difference. And I'd, I'd like strictly plan out my day you know like and and you that's your fucking calendar they, they're your times for what you do in the day like i'd even block out the times was where you get to feel shit here to sit around and watch netflix for these two hours you know but everything else is is doing shit it's like you're going to rehab there you, you know you're doing your exercise there you're doing the fucking public speaking practice there you're doing you know like you're just doing all these different things that take your mind off that, all the things you're missing out on. And and I swear, like, like the thing that makes you love whatever you're doing, like so, so for surfing, if you're a professional surfer, you'd love it because you get better at it, you know, like that's that's the basis of why you actually love it, right? So you're getting better at it and each time you see yourself getting better at it, you're like, fuck, that feels good. Like, so if you just take that logic and you can apply it to anything. It doesn't, it doesn't have to compare to broader society that you're the best at something. It just has to still have the same progression. That, that's what I reckon anyway. Like maybe it's not as like euphoric because you're not the best at something, but if you just like are doing something that you're getting better at, that's enough. Like you'd be surprised. Like that's enough to maintain like, uh, a, like a manageable psychological state and not slip into being depressed i reckon like that's i reckon that's the premise like the basis of because you see people deal with like fucked up situations like you get someone put in jail for a decade you know like that they put it how do they deal with being in jail and not end up on drugs not do that and do a, a decent stretch of 10 years a day they they like manage their days to do little hobbies or fucking learn a little skill or do whatever they can do to like and the, and the things that, that make it matter was they're just getting better at doing something, you know. And the more be- the more meaningful the something is, the better. But even if it's not that mean, it's just a simple thing. I think that that's enough, you know. And that's what helped me heaps. I was like, because I was fucking playing golf for like golf. It's just golf, you know. Like, but I got so into it that it was like, and every time I'd like fucking have a good day playing golf, it was like that, that was that was enough. I'd go and get lessons and do this shit like. That's enough, you know. It fucks you up if you go and just like you're watching what you're missing out on and you're watching other people doing what you could be doing and that's why I shut the blinds. I don't watch the surf. 
fuck off my Instagram feed. I don't see the surface surfing big waves. I don't don't watch the eddy when it runs when I should be in it and I'm not. Like you just you put all that away. So you, so you were told that you were going to surf again, and then you did. <clears throat> you had your had your foot sort of bolted on. It must have felt fucking amazing to surf again. Amazing, like the the. It was amazing going out and being out in the ocean and having that excitement of catching waves and moving around and positioning and trying to get the best wave and like just all that excitement come back. It, it was pretty frustrating to like jump up, see the way I would ride a wave, but then not be able to do it and like kind of have all these limitations with the way my leg work now. But but just the like the excitement of being out in the ocean and just trying to do the position yourself catch a good wave all those different things that was that was epic wow so one thing about you that's um you know that i find very interesting is um you think a lot about the makeup of society and and public discourse and all that sort of shit and and you're really into those you know the the intellectual dark web the brett weinstein sam harris jordan peterson etc you know why what, what do those those guys give you I don't know. I just find it interesting, man. Just, I don't. I guess maybe I didn't do enough studying when I was young. <laughs> that it's like all this, like th- this space of thought is brand new to me, and it's just it's super interesting to sit back and see, like to to try and figure out why people behave the way they behave. That to me, that's kind of fascinating. It's like. I don't know, it's like trying to figure out how an invention or a piece of mechanics work. You try and figure out how something radically more complex than that, why it's doing what it's doing. (laughs) And, I mean, the level that I think about it is, you know, pretty fucking pretty uh, basic compared to the the depths of what those people think about it. But, um, yeah, I just find it super interesting, man. And, and, And I pick up things that I can then, like, like little lessons that you can implement and just change the way you see them function in the world and just makes you happier, you know. I, I learned heaps from Jordan Peterson. He's probably one of the best I've come across as far as his ability to synthesise kind of old wisdom and, and all the modern neuroscience and all the other stuff and, and just put it into a lecture and, and make it possible for someone like me to listen to and understand. It's, uh, fuck, it's pretty amazing. And I haven't come across many people who have watched it and not found that. What um, what life lessons have you learned from Jordan Peterson? The, the value of like getting to know yourself, like truly, like who you are, what's valuable to you, what type of person do you want to be? Like really getting to know yourself, what makes you happy and what doesn't. And he always says this is one good thing a good way to figure that out is like recognize the moments where time slips away in your life so the to think about the last time where you were doing something and it's like fuck oh those two hours just went by you know and i'm not talking about fucking getting off your head on drugs or anything like that like the the things that are like valuable or like good for you to be doing and then fuck just do more of those things you know that the that's some of the best advice I've heard from him. And, and that it's like the, the good things in life are accessible but only through sacrifice. So it's like 
don't be afraid to sacrifice because it's like it's just you cannot get the good things without maximum sacrifice so it's like I don't know I thought the, the things like that were really good that he talks about and the fuck and he, I love the way he just says I didn't come up with this shit people have been talking about this since the dawn of time so <laughs> it's like uh, it's refreshing to not have someone pretend like they came up with something and they just rehashed something, some other brilliant person's work. Um, <clears throat> a, few day, a few days ago, I sent you a story about a book called Ordinary Men about a group of uh, ordinary German citizens who enlisted by the SS in World War II to go to Poland and kill Jews. And, um, and the book showed us, I think, in a, in a compelling way that um, good, good and evil exists in all of us. And that we could all become complicit in, you know, terrible wrongdoings. Um, and that the only men who resist are those who firmly believe in themselves. And the only way to do that is to have lived an honest, meaningful and productive life. Do you think you've done that? I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting better at it, for sure. Heaps of it wasn't. <laughs> but it's like, I, I can tell now when I'm like on track and... What you notice is the amount of energy you have to do what you're doing. Like 10 hours working on something that's meaningful to you is nothing. It's easy to, to put 10 hours doing something that doesn't really hold true value to you. It'll fucking, it'll drain the life out of you. And it's pretty easy to spot like once you like really want to think about it, you know. But uh, yeah, that, 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 that passage that you sent me is fucking interesting because it's such a good thought experiment to to understand that while you read on the darkness of history and you you usually read it as though you would have either been the victim of that dark history or you would have most likely been the hero and done something courageous, well, statistically, you wouldn't. You would have been the person doing bad shit because statistically when the situation became that bad, everyone just gave in, you know, like, so it's a good lesson to understand that there's darkness in you. And if you don't manage like your life and frame it well with meaning, then you can slip down that way. You become, you can become fucking bitter pretty damn quickly at life. If you're not doing the right thing. I mean, it's, I mean, I think, Hannah Arendt's banality of evil, right? Where evil isn't some extravagant thing. It's, it's, yeah, it's banality. It's boring. Evil is the easy way to go for yeah. all this thing. Like if you don't have a reason not to, you just go evil. Yeah. And that, and that, that, that was the other thing that thing mentioned was like the, the evil people in history weren't totally evil and no. the, the heroes within history weren't just heroes. Like people are, radically complex so it's kind of <laughs> it's just that, that it's good to get to know yourself that's yeah. that's that, that whole point know what you're capable of Mikey Matthews thank you so much for today no worries thanks boys huge pleasure <laughs> thought we'd be talking about this shit in the surf podcast ah <laughs> it's a new world <laughs> love it <laughs> thanks Mikey thanks you boys
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.